So why do we do things that we know are wrong? Why do we do things that we know are wrong? It's an interesting question. Why do we do things that we know we know are wrong? So for example, I work at home. Um, that's not unusual anymore in these COVID days, but uh, I have an office, a study, where I, um, I have all my books around me, I have a computer, and I can think and pray and you know, prepare sermons like this one. But then sometimes the disadvantage of working at home is that you can get interrupted. Um, the kids, they come into my, my study and then I kind of funnel them out the door, I talk to them and I funnel them out the door and then they come in again and then again and then they sit under my desk and my, and my chair and they hang off my arm as I'm trying to type. Uh, but then to my shame, I get angry. I know. Why do we do things that we know are wrong? Now, I know that I shouldn't get angry with my children. They're just being children at that moment. I know that it's wrong, and yet I get angry anyway. Why do I do this? Why do we give in to these situations? Well, we know in our head anyway that what we are doing is not right. Why do we do it? Why do we, in the biblical language, why do we sin? Why do we give in to temptation? Well, let me tell you about a guy called Adam. Has anyone heard of Adam before? Maybe the kids? Adam, yep, awesome. So, he is the first person that God made. Right at the beginning of the Bible, you can find him. He's made by God. He's created to rule in God's world. In, in the Jesus, yes, Jesus is always the answer. So, Adam's created to rule in God's temple garden called, in a place called Eden. He's called God's son. And everything in Eden is just how it should be. He's enjoying, Adam's enjoying the blessing of being in God's life-giving presence. He's with God. But what happens? He believes a lie told by the serpent Satan. Adam disbelieves God. He's tempted and gives in to temptation. And for his sin, Adam is Adam and Eve are cast out of God's life-giving presence. Adam fails when tempted. He gives in to temptation. He sins. And so this is our story, the human story ever since. It's our story. Let me tell you about another son. This time, it's not just one person, Adam. It's a whole nation called Israel. God's son, Israel, is called to worship God and enjoy God's life-giving presence. But again, what happens? They face temptation and they fail the test. They give in time and again. Temptation and then sin. That's the human story. It's our story. Now, you might be thinking this is a little bit depressing, this start to the sermon. Uh, Aren't human beings basically good? Maybe just a little bit flawed, but what in, what's inside us is basically good. And yes, human beings can do good things. We do good things. But think of the world, right? Think of how, how people treat each other, how we treat each other. Broken relationships, lies, violence, tears. This is, this is what the human race is like. We, this world isn't as it should be. This is not how we were made to be. Why do we do what we know is 
wrong. The Bible says that we are sinners. We are bent out of shape. Uh, like a traffic light pole which has been hit with a truck. It's sort of like, we're sinners. And we give in to temptation. And this separates us from God and the world is a mess because of it. And so we come to Mark today and we see another son. No, not Adam, not Israel, but another son called Jesus. This son is in the wilderness like Israel. Notice this. This son is tempted like Adam. Notice this. But unlike Adam and unlike Israel and unlike us, this son, Jesus, faces the temptation, faces the test, and he wins. Why? Because of who he is. He is, as we see here, the beloved son of the Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is the good news for us today. So we've got three points. Number one, Jesus is the son is good news because one, he acts on our behalf. Two, he acts on our behalf as the beloved son. And three, he acts on our behalf as the beloved son and he withstands temptation. So first of all, let's see that Jesus, we're going to see that Jesus is the son who stands with and for us. He acts on our behalf. So verse 9, let me read that out again. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. So it's a pretty simple verse there, but it has lots of meaning. John the Baptist, we, we saw him last week. Just a few verses earlier, he was getting, hi, he was getting God's people, the Jews, ready for God to arrive. That's verse 3, by the way. He was preparing uh, the people. He's calling Israel, the Jewish people, God's people, to repent of their sins. Verse 4, he's, and they're going to be baptised for the forgiveness of their sins. John says in verse 7 and 8 that the mighty one is coming, one who will baptise not with water, but with the Holy Spirit, the one who will wash you inwardly and pour out the Holy Spirit. And so we come to verse 9 and we find Jesus here. But something doesn't seem quite right if we've been reading so far. This is the great arrival scene of the Mighty One, the Messiah, God Himself. But something doesn't seem quite right. Have you seen the movie Aladdin? Have you seen the movie Aladdin? In the newish one, there's, I think it's in the old one too, there's this great arrival scene where Aladdin and all these elephants and flamingos and dancers, they come into the city he makes a grand entrance. He announces his arrival. But that's not the arrival scene we get here. There's no, there's no motorcade from the airport or private jet or security cards. Notice where Jesus arrives from, verse 9. He's from Nazareth. It's like saying Jesus comes from Bracknell, right? It's a small country town. Uh, it's not exactly where you expect the big, mighty one to arrive from. But there's more. Mark tells us that Jesus is baptised by John. There. If you remember to verse 8, he, isn't Jesus the one who's meant to be baptising? Isn't he the one who's meant to baptise with the Holy Spirit? But no, Jesus is baptised by John in the Jordan. 
It's all a bit unexpected here. Jesus, you see, is baptised along with the rest of the people. You see the baptism here, Jesus is showing us why he came. He's showing us why he came. He's not there to repent personally of his own sin, his own sins. We find elsewhere in the Bible that Jesus is without sin. He's perfect. No, Jesus is baptised here, not for his own forgiveness, but for the forgiveness of others. Jesus comes and is baptised with Israel, with them, for them. That's the point. He's baptised in the Jordan River. Again, highly significant and symbolic. In the Old Testament, the Jordan is the river where God led Israel into the Promised Land, across the Jordan, into the land of blessing, to dwell in God's presence. Israel had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their failure. They didn't stand up to the test. They gave in. The nation failed. And so where does Jesus turn up? He turns up at the Jordan River. And he's baptised along with the nation of Israel. And this is the point. He's not baptised for his own sins. He's baptised for their sins. He's baptised for their forgiveness, not his. He's baptised as Israel's Messiah, the Son, the true Israel. He's acting on behalf. He's representing his people. Jesus came with his people and for his people. So, friends, when we realise that Jesus came to be with and for his people, for us, then we, need, we begin to realise that we actually need a representative. We need a representative. Friends, our hope doesn't lie within ourselves, but outside of ourselves. Not in us, but in Jesus. That's where our hope is found. And this says a lot about us, doesn't it? Because in and of ourselves, we can't actually make our way to God on our own path. We can't actually look inside us and muster up the willpower to make it. In the light of Scripture, we see when we look inside of us, and we know this by experience, we're pretty messed up and ugly. It's not pretty. I see it in myself, and I'm sure you can see it in yourself as well. We're sinners who are tempted. We do things that we know are wrong. In contrast to Jesus here, we struggle with humility. We often find ourselves wanting to show others how good we are. You know, we get into that conversation, you know the conversation sometimes, and we can't wait just to, to speak. We can't wait to turn the conversation around to me, myself and I. That's just what we're like. We can present an image to other people of who we are, how we want to dress and so that people will think well of us. Humility, for the most part, doesn't come naturally, doesn't come easily. But look at Jesus, the Mighty One, God Himself, is baptised. He's humble, so much so that He is baptised with and for His people. And this, this points forward, this baptism here points forward to the baptism that Jesus would go through at the cross much later, a baptism of death on behalf of his people, 
on that cross. In submitting to death, Jesus bears the sins of his people, not for his forgiveness, but for theirs. That's humility. We need Jesus to be our representative. We need God the Son to come into the world as one of us, identifying with us, representing us. One who doesn't fail, who doesn't give in, who isn't sinful. One who stands for us in our place. And without him, there is no hope for us. So trust him. So point two, because Jesus stands for us, we see that he's able to do this because of who he is. And this is the second point. We see that Jesus is good news for us here today because he's the beloved son. We find what has been hinted at so far in the, in the, in the gospel here, but it's kind of declared from, declared from heaven, right? Loud and clear. Jesus is the Son of God. And because of who he is, he's able to achieve his mission, why he came. So verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, it's quite a scene, isn't it? Now, Jesus is there, he's been baptised, he's coming up out of the water, he's dripping. And we get three signs here, three signs in this verse, in these couple of verses. Heaven is torn open, the Holy Spirit comes down, and the voice from heaven. Three signs. We see the Father is speaking, the Spirit is crowning, and the Son is commissioned. And the tearing of the heavens, the first sign, the tearing. And what what does that mean? It represents God's breaking in. He's breaking in. God's presence is with his people. Now, I have this greenhouse in my backyard and the wind gets to it and it rips, right? A couple of weeks ago, was it a couple of weeks ago, I guess? It was really windy. We've had some windy days lately and I had to lean a wheelbarrow up to it some chairs and sort of lash it down with the hose because it would have blown away and torn to bits in the wind. I had to do this because things that rip aren't able to be fixed again. Things that tear aren't able to be shut. And that's the point of what's going on here. Heaven is ripped open. God is breaking in. Isaiah 64 verse 1 says, If only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. Heaven tears open. God has come. The second sign is the Spirit coming like a dove into Jesus. And here Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's set apart as the Messiah, the Son, the great King of the world. Now earlier this year we had a new President of the United States or inaugurated, I think it was this year, wasn't it? It was a long time ago. He was installed into his office, President Biden. And in a much greater way here, Jesus is installed into his office by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit crowns Jesus. It's not like Jesus didn't have the Spirit before this 
moment. But the Spirit is commissioning Jesus, crowning Jesus, empowering Jesus for his mission as Saviour of the world. And verse 11, the third sign, Jesus hears the voice of his Father saying, You are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Jesus is the beloved Son. Now the title here shows us who Jesus is. He's God the Son who has come to represent his people as the Messiah, as the new Adam, the Israel, the Son. The Father is delighted in Jesus. No higher love is possible than this love. He's delighted, he's pleased. No relationship we can have with our partners or friends or children or parents, human relationships pale in comparison to this love that is expressed here. It's an infinite affection and delight. It's a love which has overflown in the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. Jesus' mission to serve, suffer and save is the eternal plan of a loving God. It's not as though Jesus came and did his own thing. Uh, No, we see the whole Trinity involved, the one God in three persons involved in Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission here as saviour of the world is of the mission of the one triune God. Now, kids, now some of you kids have been learning um, a catechism called the New City Catechism. It has songs as well, which I love. And I wonder if some of the kids can help me out um, with a question. How many persons are there in God? How many persons are there in God? <gasps> yeah, do you want to go? Yep, one God in three persons. Fabulous. Thank you very much for your help. There are three persons in one God. Do you, do you remember the persons? God the f- Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Wonderful. That's very important to learn. Thank you very much for your help. So this is the God we worship as, as Christians the one God in three persons. We believe and love and serve the one God. You know, the Trinity, it's a mystery, right? It's strange and hard to understand. But I actually think the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is a compelling reason why Christianity must be true, right? Because you'd never make up a religion which worships one God in three persons, right? (laughs) The Trinity, it's true. And these verses show us this. Because of who Jesus is, the divine son who comes for us, he's able to achieve his mission to save his people. While Jesus is truly human, right? He's truly, he's a a person. He's not just an ordinary person, is he? He's not just a normal old religious teacher of the day. He's God in the flesh, the divine son. And he's like us, the book of Hebrews says, in every way yet without sin. When Jesus comes to earth, he's not going about his life, his miracles, his, he's casting out demons, as we'll see in a couple of weeks' time, or he's not doing all this on his own. As we see here, this really sets up the whole book. Everything Jesus does in his life, his mission, his ministry, everything he does in the love of the Father, in the power of the Spirit. 
Jesus' ministry is the mission of the one God in three persons. And because of who Jesus is, unlike us, who we fail and we stumble and we give in to that temptation that comes along, so often, right? But as we read here, Jesus is with able to is able to withstand temptation because of who he is. And that's why it's good news for us. So we come to the last point today and we've seen that Jesus is with us and for us. And as the beloved son of the father, he goes out on his mission. Now, he, where does he go? Where does Jesus go immediately after being crowned by the spirit? Where does he go? He goes into battle. And we see that Jesus is the son who withstands temptation and he wins the battle. Verse 12, at once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. So what happens here? He's baptised and the spirit drives him out. It's strong language. The spirit drives him out into the wilderness just like Israel were tested in, the, in that desert for 40 years, how long is Jesus out there for? 40 days. 40 days he's tempted by Satan. Mark set up the battle scene here. Pieces are moved into place. It's the contest of all contests. Jesus' side, we have the angels serving him and more importantly, the Holy Spirit. And on the other side, we have Satan. And I think the wild animals kind of kind of a on the Satan side there too, maybe. That's my guess anyway. Jesus faces the temptation in the wilderness, in the power of the Spirit. Like Adam in the garden, like Israel before whom, the Son faces temptation. And the question is, will Jesus give in? Will he be like Adam? Will he be like Israel? Or will he be victorious? And the scene really sets up the whole of Jesus' ministry in the book of Mark, but it's clear who wins right from the get-go. Jesus wins. Why? Because he's the beloved son of the Father who faces temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus enters the contest. He goes into battle. He's in that desert, the dangerous place, the testing place, the wild place, and he faces off against that serpent from right at the beginning of the Bible. Behind the persecution Jesus faces along his ministry, behind the demonic attacks that he faces, the unbelief of the crowds around him in his ministry, the opposition that Jesus faces, it's all from Satan. This battle plays out across his ministry right up until his death. And in his death, Jesus deals the decisive blow. He lives and dies for his people, representing his people as their Messiah. Jesus wins because he's the Son, beloved of the Father, empowered by the Spirit. And he brings forgiveness of sins that we desperately need. The Messiah, the Son, who is with and for his people, acts on behalf of his people, withstands temptation when we give in. The enemy, Satan, bound, victory is won. 
the good news of new life in God's presence is opened up for all who believe. So, friends, the Christian life is a battle. It's a, it's a fight. You know, sometimes it's pretty easy just to coast through day by day doing our own thing. We get up Monday morning, it comes around every week. The same old routines, the things we do. You know, I've got to get the kids off to school. But do we see it through this lens? Do we see our lives as a fight? Because in this world, in our hearts, there are constant temptations that come in these ordinary sorts of situations. There are constant temptations that come our way. So we need to be wary, we need to be alert. You know, every day we wake up, it's battle time. The temptations we are presented with are sometimes so obviously wrong, right? Um, some, t- some sins are before us and we just don't go that way because they're just obviously wrong and we just don't do them. But more often for us, temptations that actually work for us are things that offer us something good, things like food, wealth, security, you know, pleasure, knowledge. No, for example, we're running late to work, we're in the car, being at work on time is a good thing, right? You know, we're in the car, we want to get to work on time, but we break traffic laws to get there on time. See, there's the temptation. Or maybe we find our family budget a bit tight. And having money is a good thing, right? Having enough money to live on and, and in your life is good, but you know, we can maybe work Centrelink to get a little bit more. Um, that's the problem. We're tempted for a good thing, but we do it the wrong way. Sin seems plausible and attractive to us. It promises us things. And so, friends, our hope each and every day is the Lord Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done here in his life and ministry, there is good news for us. Without Jesus, we don't stand a chance of withstanding temptation. Satan's real. He's not the imaginary guy with a pitchfork and you see in cartoons. Our spiritual forces are, uh, of evil are real and dangerous. He wants us, Satan wants us to give in. But when we face temptation, he wants us to trust in anything else other than God, apart from God. But the good news we see here is that Jesus wins. And he is with us by the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian here today... The same Holy Spirit who came upon the Lord Jesus here, who led, guided, protected Jesus, the same Holy Spirit has been given to you. He's with you. He's with this church. The temptations you face every day, and there are many online and offline, in advertising, at work, temptations, they're able to be resisted because the Spirit has been given to us, the Spirit who equipped Jesus for His battle equips you. So friends, rely on the Spirit. Trust the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. When you're tempted to look at that thing you know you know is wrong, or when you find anger welling up in your heart, pray to the Lord. 
Pray to God. When you've been wronged and you're tempted to get back at that person, rely on the Spirit. Pray to your, your Father. Ask for help. The Father loves you. Trust Him. Depend on Him. God has given us each other to help us, help us in this as well. We know we will fail and give in and oftentimes we'll sin against each other in our church. And so, God has given us the resources we need in this battle to say sorry when we wrong each other. He gives us his word, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, um, baptism, which we'll witness in a few weeks' time. He gives us prayer, and he promises never to leave us. We can confess our sins. Isn't that good? We can confess our sins to the Lord. We can encourage each other to live by faith and trust, and trust God. Jesus, as the book of Hebrews says, was without sin and he's able to help us in times of need, in our times of need. Jesus, we see Jesus, he faced temptation, he won the victory and he promises to help us as well because we're his people. So I don't know about what your next week will be like, but one thing is for certain, you will face temptations. There will be things that come along in your life this week, whether you're tempted to be angry or, or envy or any, anything, number of sins, right? And there will be times when I fail and need to confess my sins. But there is real hope as well. There is real hope and thanks be to God that unlike you and me, Jesus the Son didn't fail. He stands for us as his people and thanks be to God that the beloved Son has given us this Holy Spirit. The Spirit is with us and helps us in that battle and grows us more and more like Jesus. Amen.